Welcome to the teaching ministry of Temple Baptist Church. While we hope you can join us in person, our prayer is that this message will encourage you to love God and serve Him in a deeper way. Ah, good morning, everyone. So good to see you, and thank you for being here. I hope you are enjoying your summer. Uh, for those who are here for the first time, my name is Donald, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Five weeks ago, Five weeks ago, we began a brand new summer series called God is on the Move. We're studying the book of Genesis. And, and one of the things that we've already discovered in the book of Genesis is that God is an initiator. He's always the one who makes the first move when it comes to relationships. That's why we say we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. We're also discovering that the book of Genesis is more than just a record of how the whole world began. And one of the things that I'm learning personally as we made our, make our way through the book of Genesis is that the book of Genesis is not just about great men and great women who did great things for God and that we're supposed to pattern our lives after. Maybe you grew up in Sunday school and, and that was the challenge, you know, you got to be more like Abraham, you got to be more like Joseph, you know, and, uh, but as I'm reading through the book of Genesis, I'm discovering that these great men and these great women had a lot of flaws and a lot of failures. You know what I'm talking about? You read through their lives and what you discover, they, have, uh, they lie, they make huge mistakes, they're fearful, they're selfish, they lack faith, they cause problems for other people, they make bad decisions. And I think to myself, why in the world would I want to pattern my life after that? No, really, the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis is about great sin that is met with even a greater grace the grace of God. We see that in Adam, we see it in Eve, we see it in Cain, we see it in Noah, and we've seen it already in Abraham. I mean, just think about this. Adam rebels and what happens? God promises a deliverer. Doesn't make much sense. God, I mean, Cain commits the sin of murdering his own brother and what happens? He's given the grace of protection. It's unbelievable. You look at Noah, I mean, living in a pagan society and out of nowhere, God just lavishes his favor on Noah. Not because Noah was doing something great, but there God just chooses to lavish his, his uh, favor on Noah. And as I've read through the book of, uh, as I've been reading that story again in Noah, and Terry did a great job a couple weeks ago talking about that, uh, it, it hit me again that after the flood, after it was all over and, and Noah comes out of the ark and all the animals come out of the ark, that God actually says to Noah, listen, the world is gonna get worse, but I'm gonna make a promise. My promise is I will never destroy the world again through a flood. Now you would think that after the world had been destroyed by a flood, that God would say, well, I hope those people know now what I can do and what I will do. They'll certainly fall in line now, but no. He actually says to Noah, after they come out of the ark, people are going to get worse, but I'm going to make a promise. I'll never destroy the world again through a flood. So every time that we see a, a rainbow in the sky, because that was a sign that God would never flood the world again, but it's also a sign of God's amazing grace, God's absolute amazing grace for us. And that's really what the book of Genesis is all about, a God full of grace. The book of Genesis demonstrates to us that we are not achievers, we are simply receivers. The book of Genesis really does paint a picture of a one-way, unconditional, unstoppable, immovable love of God. That's the book of Genesis. 
And then last week, of course, Pastor Dave looked at the, uh, the subject of uh, Abraham and the promise that was made uh, to Abraham. And what is interesting, when you read that story, God doesn't make a deal with Abraham. God doesn't say, you know, Abraham, if you do this, this, and this, I'll do this. No, it's an unconditional, an unconditional call on Abraham. And there's this unconditional promise given to Abraham. In fact, all these stories that we read through Genesis is like reading the, the, the story of good news. It's really the gospel. It's like the book of Genesis could be called the, uh, the gospel according to Genesis. That despite the sinfulness of men, God is preparing to send someone who will deliver them. And all these stories really are just to whet our appetite for the one who would ultimately come and deliver us all. In fact, uh, I've had many times, I've been in discussions with people who say, well, the Old Testament really isn't really about Jesus. I mean, that's what the New Testament is all about. And then I'm always reminded, which I've said many times before, in Luke chapter 24, remember that story of the Emmaus Road. Two men are walking on the road. They're so discouraged, they're so disheartened, they're, so, they're depressed because the one that they had put all their hope in, Jesus, has just been recently crucified in Jerusalem. And they're on their way home because he's been taken off the cross, he's been put into a tomb, and now their hopes have been dashed. The one person who was supposed to save them is now gone. And they're, and they're walking back home, and, and the scriptures say in Luke chapter 24 that Jesus appeared. It's after the resurrection. He appears to them. They don't recognize him. And it says that from, uh, the, old, from the scriptures, the Old Testament, he begins to um, read from the prophets and shows them how every single story actually points to Jesus. The Bible is a Jesus-centered book. There is only one story that is told in this book. It only it points to one figure. It describes one hero over and over again. And it tells us that when men are at our worst, I love this, that God is at his best. Don't you love that? When we're at our worst, God is at his best. In fact, the New Testament puts it this way, why we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This summarizes everything that we're learning in the book of Genesis, that God meets great sin with even a greater grace, that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Where sin runs rampant, grace runs even more rampant. The entire book of Genesis is really, well, it's really our story. It's our story. God meets, I like how one pastor puts it, he says, God meets our rebellion with his rescue. God meets our sin with his salvation. God meets our guilt with his grace. God meets our badness with his goodness. And that is who he is. And my friend, that's good news. That is great news for you and I today. The grace of God. That while we were yet sinners, God came. While we were yet running around doing our own thing, God came. While we were running around trying to make our own salvation project, God came. God came in the midst of us doing our absolutely only, doing our own thing. And then Jesus says, I love this, when he says, I did not come into the world, by the way, to save the righteous. I came for the unrighteous. He said, I didn't come for the healthy, I, I came for the unhealthy. And Jesus, by the way, is not saying there's two groups of people. 
that when he came to earth, he says, well, you know what? There's the righteous people who are doing it right. They got it down pat. I just came for the unrighteous. He's not saying I just came for the unhealthy because there's, a, there's are some healthy people over here. No, he's saying that all are unrighteous and that's who I came for. Not, not the righteous. He came for those who know how desperate they really are. He's come for those who really know how needy they are. He's come for those who really know how sinful they are. That's who Jesus came for when he came to this earth. As I said last week, Pastor Dave did a great job just talking about Abraham and, and, and the whole promise of a son. And when I read through that story again, it, it's almost ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it, that God would come to a man who was 100 years of age and say, you're gonna have a son. And your wife, who's 90 years of age, who's never had a child in her life, who's been barren all of her life, she's gonna get pregnant. I mean, it almost sounds ridiculous when you think about it. I mean, it's almost like, uh, God, you're a little too late. Maybe if you had to come back when, when Sarah was 20 and Abraham was 30, maybe something could happen then. We know when they're at their prime. Or, you know, maybe we could push it. Maybe Sarah could be 45 or 48, maybe, but not 90 years of age. The story is ridiculous. And, and you know what? I think we do the exact same thing that Abraham and Sarah did. They laughed. How can that be? I think their response is the same response that you and I would make. And this week, uh, yesterday actually, I was sitting right here on this front row by myself and I opened my Bible and I was reading through the book of Romans actually. And I read Romans chapter four and it describes again in Romans chapter four, I had forgotten about that, uh, describes Abraham's, uh, the apostle Paul describes their situation, their uh, barrenness as dead. Biological life coming from these two individuals was impossible. They were as good as dead dead as far as producing an heir. That was the situation they have. And as you read through the Bible and you read through the book of Genesis, it is not about good people making their way up to God. It's always the story of God making his way down to people. And we see that over and over and over again in the book of Genesis. The Bible tells us in a thousand different ways that we are failing sinners, but he is a successful savior. And it says that over and over again. That is the story of the Bible. From Genesis, from the opening verses of Genesis to the closing chapters of Revelation, we see that story being told over and over again. And when we do not believe that, we carry this burden on us. It's a burden that we carry because all of a sudden now we're trying to meet a standard that we just can't. We carry the weight of it all. And the book of Genesis reminds us that we are not God. He is. And he's met the standards and the demands. The story of Abraham, or the story of Abraham and Isaac has got to be the most explicit narrative in all of the Old Testament of the gospel of Jesus. I mean, you find everything in this story, a loving father, a one and only son, a substitutionary sacrifice, a resurrection. 
I mean, the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament is always pointing to Jesus, but then there are some stories in the Bible that are so blatant. This is Jesus, the story of Jesus, and that is one of them. Because there's another story of a loving father, a one and only son, a substitutionary sacrifice, and a resurrection. When you read this story that we're about to read, you have got to admit it is a very strange story, the story of Abraham and Isaac and the fact that God has asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's strange, it's weird. Why would, God, why would God ask Abraham to do human sacrifice? God's pro-life, isn't he? Doesn't he love life? Doesn't he encourage life? He's never asked this before for human sacrifice. And of all, the, of all the people to sacrifice, he's asking Abraham to sacrifice the one child, the one and only son, the promised son. Abraham, the one that you love, the one who is the heir, the one who's gonna bless the nations of the world. Yeah, that's the one I want you to kill. Honestly, you're reading, oh, this is weird. This is, this is strange that God would require this. I mean, this is the son who's gonna produce a great nation. That was the promise given to Abraham. This is the son who will produce a nation that will bless the nations of the world. And God is asking Abraham to sacrifice the promised child. It's unbelievable. In fact, let's read the story. It's found in Genesis chapter 22. If you have your Bibles, you can turn, turn there. Genesis chapter 22. And uh, you can follow along as I read. In Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, here am I, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Well, early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place of God that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here am I, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, 
your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Let's just pray. Father, I thank you for this incredible story. And I pray, Lord, as we take a, a few more minutes to really dive deep into the story, that we will see you, that you would be elevated. Lord, that your name would be above all other names in this room here this morning, we pray. Illuminate our eyes, open our hearts and minds to your truth, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. When you read through that story, you don't know the immediate response of Abraham. I mean, can you imagine God speaking to Abraham and what maybe his immediate response would have been. All it says is early the next day he went. Now, I, I don't know, I think we can be real here. I think if that had have been me, I, I would put a strong fight up. God, there's no way that's gonna be happening. Seriously, God, this is my son, my one and only son. This is the promised child that you have promised me for years. I finally have him. I'm not sacrificing my son. I think I would put a stronger fight up. I probably would have just said, no, I'm not doing it. It's too much. What you ask of me, God, is too much. I can't do it. Maybe I would have convinced myself, this is not the voice of God. This has got to be the voice of an enemy who wants to devour the promise that God has given to me. Uh, we don't have Abraham's immediate response. All we know is that early the next morning, he went on his way. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says that Abraham had the ability, had the eyes to see the impossible. In fact, in the story that we just read there, it says to his servants that we're gonna go sacrifice and we will return. I'm like, I wonder what Abraham's thinking. I don't know, maybe Abraham's thinking that God's gonna have to resurrect my son. That's what he's gonna have to do because God made a promise to me that this is the son, this is the promised child, this is the one who will, there will be a great nation, this is the one who's gonna bless the nations of the world. So somehow God's gonna to have to do something because we're gonna come back together. I don't know if, if Abraham's ever seen a resurrection before, but in this particular story, something's gonna to have to happen. And it says early next morning he went on his way. And what we see in this story is that God makes a demand that is so great, but then God meets the demand. That's what happens in this story. God's commands or requires that Abraham would sacrifice his son. Abraham feels the weight of it because it's his son. It's his only son. And then at the very last minute, as Abraham's raising his knife, they realize there's a, a ram caught in the thicket, a beautiful picture of God meeting his own demand. So really, what does the story tell us? When we through the story, what does ultimately the story tell us? The story is a story about God doing what only he could do that we could never do for ourselves. This really is a story, honestly, is a story of the cross. This is a story of the resurrection. This is a story from life, from death. In fact, in Hebrews 11, again, it says, in a sense, God gives Isaac back his life by providing a substitutionary sacrifice. God makes a demand of sinners, 
but then God meets the demand. That's what's so amazing. I mean, honestly, this story should allow you to lift the weight off of your shoulders. God makes a demand, but then he meets the demand. That's what God does. And we know what it is to always feel under the pressure of demand, you know, do better, perform better, go faster at it. Maybe you're at your job, you gotta do better. You gotta have better sales. You gotta, there's always this demand on you. Maybe you feel that at home, the demand to do better. You look at someone else's family and their children are all so obedient and so quiet. And you're like, oh my goodness, I gotta raise the standard to try to meet what's happening over there. You know, maybe you're here and you're single and you're, and you feel like, well, I gotta meet the demand of getting married and there must be something wrong with me if I'm not married. So you're, you're always trying to reach uh, a requirement, you're trying to be perfect. And then you realize you just can't do it. You hear all these voices of accusations, thousands of voices telling us you don't add up. You know, we, we try to lose weight so we can, you know, look a lot better. And, and we, we have problems losing weight. Like there's always that demand to, to look better, to, to perform better. We know what it is to live under the weight of demand. I struggle with that myself. I, I go on the line, I'll watch some of these amazing preachers that are preaching and I, you know, see the churches and the, and the life changes that are happening in their community. I'm like, oh, I can never reach up to that. And you try a little harder and you work a little harder. Always trying to meet the demand to be better. Well, Abraham felt the weight of a demand. And we feel the same weight, the judgment on us, the desire to meet expectations and pursue perfection is literally rooted in our humanity. To do better, to perform for perfection. The gospel tells us that the demand though has already been met. I mean, where does that come from? Where does that idea that we have to be perfect? Well, actually you find it right in the Bible. Because Jesus himself, be perfect like me. Like be perfect. Who in the world can live like that? I mean, I think as crazy as the story of Abraham is with having to sacrifice his Isaac, how more ridiculous, how crazy it is that God says be perfect like me. And that's crazy. And the place where we see God making crazy demands is also the same place where he meets that crazy demand, it's the cross. I mean, how many of us have been successful with the verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. How, how are you doing at that? Whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever, do it all for the glory of God. I don't know about you, but I'm having a hard time with that. I try. But boy, I struggle with that. What I can say though is that Jesus' death and sacrifice covers my sinful efforts to glorify myself. I can say that. You know, sometimes um, I'll sing a song or I'll listen to a song and it will say, you know, Jesus is all that I need. He satisfies me completely. And I think to myself, I want that to be true. I do, I strive, I, I work hard to it, but there's times I, I think, I don't think it's true. Satisfies me in everything. I go, hmm, 
I don't know about that. But I can say that Jesus' blood covers all my imperfections. That I can say. What about pure motives? Like when I think of, when, when the standard is to be perfect, I think of pure motives. I mean, is there really such a thing? Pure motives in everything that you do. Well, the good news is Jesus covers my impure motives. That's the good news. I mean, can you imagine if we had to meet the demand of being perfect? The weight of our shoulder, on our shoulders. And then Jesus says, listen, by the way, I didn't come to destroy the law. I didn't come to remove the demand. I actually came to meet the demand. I came to fulfill the law. I didn't come to sweep it all under the carpet. I came to fulfill it. So stop trying to meet the demand, because you can't, but Jesus did. That's what's so amazing about the story of Jesus and the gospel. The good news is you don't have to meet the demand, you can't meet the demand of perfection, but, God, but Jesus already has. Now I know sometimes we try to reduce the demand. So we think that we can meet the demands. We try to satisfy the judge. We pretend that we look like we have it all together, that we're meeting the, the, the demands. It's a life of pretending, a life of de deception. When we're always trying to meet the demand, let me tell you, you cannot enjoy what God has done for you. He's made this impossible demand, but then he meets that demand. And if you're trying to meet the demand, all you ever experience is the weight of the demand on you. Jesus met the demand for you. So you can enjoy that fact. Stop trying to meet the demand that you cannot meet, a perfection. It's a crazy demand, this demand of perfection that God requires. But then God met the demand. He made the demand and he met the man. We don't have to live under the weight of the demand of God's requirements because it has been met. So we can take those voices that are always full of accusation that if you do this and you do this and you do this, then you can live. No. There's really one voice that we should be listening to and this is the voice, it is finished. The demand has been met my friend, the demand of perfection, the righteousness of God is found in Jesus. And be assured that the righteousness of Christ before God is all we need. And the righteousness of Christ before God is all we have. Aren't you glad it met the demand? And that's why we read a story like this and we just find it absolutely shocking that, that God would make these demands and then he himself would go ahead and, and make them. It's so, uh, it's just not the way we think. This grace, this amazing grace. That's why we say it's so scandalous what God has absolutely done for us. It's a one-way love. One way, 
It's not two ways. It's not like, well, I'll do this, I'll do this, and I'll do this, and then God will love me. It's never been about that. Because actually, when we're at, as I said before, when we're at our worst, that's when God is at his best. When we recognize that. It's not a two-way love. It's God reaching down and giving to us what we do not deserve. This life from death. God demonstrates again his grace is always greater than our sin. Always. We know our sin is great and it reaches far, but God's grace always reaches just a little bit farther. That's the grace of God. And it's the person who says, I'm not cutting it, (laughs) that grace is what you're looking for. When you come to the point and you say, you know what, I can't meet the demands. I try, but I can't. I, 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 I can't. I, I'm not cutting it. I recognize I'm just needy. Well, that's who the grace of God's for. That's why I love this verse that we find in Romans. I say it all the time. I say it to myself because I know where I mess up and I make, and I, I make huge mistakes in my life. And then I read a verse like this and I, I it's Romans 8.1. It says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the banner in which we live under. As, a, as followers of Jesus, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And let me tell you, if the demand had not been met, we would say there is condemnation. But because of what Jesus has done, and this story, amazing story, how it paints this incredible picture, how a loving father would sacrifice his one and only son and that he would be a substitutionary sacrifice for us and that God would raise him from the dead. That's our story. That is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for our brief time together. We thank you, Lord, that as we've been going through the book of Genesis, we see it over and over and over again, the grace of God, the amazing grace of God. The book is a book about a God who is absolutely full, full of grace. And Lord, I pray this morning that if there would be some, one here today, who really has not has not fully understood the amazing grace of God in their life. I pray, Lord, that before they leave here this morning, they would know that the demand of perfection has been met for them. It was met in Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that you are a God who is always on the move. You're always initiating. You're always making that first move towards us and having a relationship with you. What an amazing God you are what amazing God that we serve today. Thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for meeting the demand that should have been us to meet, but you met it.
and we're so thankful for it. In Jesus' name, amen.